Warning, this issue of Neil Desperandum is rated R for frequent adult content and some strong language. Neil Desperandum 18, The Autobiography of God by J. Michael Schell. This is J. Michael Schell's second appearance here on Neil Desperandum. His first, an Occidental Book of the Dead, appeared back in Nil Desperandum 4. This is the second part in a trilogy. The third part, Preacher Porter's Cure, will also be appearing here in Nil Desperandum in the coming months. The Autobiography of God by J. Michael Schell Introduction Actually, I'm not entirely sure this isn't a preface, as opposed to an introduction. In fact, the entire body of this work will, for most readers, be an introduction. Still, I am reluctant to preface God's autobiography. It seems to me at best impertinent, at worst a trifle blasphemous. Ultimately, introduction is most accurate, as I intend here, very briefly, to introduce myself. I feel it is only fair and the courteous thing to do as any reader of the only definitive, authorized biography of God must surely ask, why would the Almighty choose a relatively unknown writer, as opposed to, say, Tom Wolfe or George Plimpton, to pen his biography? And further, why choose someone with absolutely no affiliation to any known church or religion? These are good questions, and my anticipation of them, I humbly submit, warrants my writing this extremely short explanation in the form of the above-mentioned introduction. Your first question is quite simply answered. I am only relatively unknown to you. Apparently the Lord has read everything I have ever written. Please don't mistake this simple statement of fact for braggadocio, as he has also read everything you've ever written, or will write, as well as everything you've ever thought, or will think. And, perhaps, if you too had read everything I've ever written, you would find my work as entertaining as he has. I have it on high authority that God dwells, more or less, depending upon the disposition, in everyone. I can't help but suppose, putting two and two together, as they say, that he dwells significantly less in publishers of fiction, as they have seemed not to share his delight in my creative forays. But enough on that subject. Who am I, after all, to debate God's will? As to your second question, I am told by he himself that my personal dislike, nay disdain, of organized religion ranked highest on my list of qualifications to receive his autobiography. Apparently he shares my loathing of the pompous and the hypocritical. In his case, however, it is a loving loathing, whereas I simply loathe. Preface. Having dispensed with the introductions, I now find myself at a loss to begin without, at least very briefly, discussing how it was that I came upon my commission. Needless to say, no ad appeared in Writer's Digest seeking a relatively unknown, a-religious writer to pen the autobiography of God. Had such an ad appeared, I'd have huffed gruffly and continued seeking new outlets for my fiction. Unless you have tried to publish, you cannot possibly imagine the number of scam artists focusing their attentions on writers. There are phony agents promoting phony book doctors, Visa and MasterCard accepted, not to mention bogus contests 
and the so-called subsidy presses. An ad for someone to collaborate on God's autobiography is just the sort of hogwash you'd expect to find in the classifieds of a magazine for writers. Then how, you may query, if I might anticipate just this once more, did you come upon such an opportunity? Another good question, gentle reader. As strange as this may seem, and as best I can recall, I was lying in my bed contemplating sex, or rather, on that particular night, my unrequited desire thereof, when the call came. I do not by call refer to a phone call, but to a calling, so to speak. As I recollect, I was envisioning a rather petite blonde, well proportioned for her size, some twenty-odd years younger than myself. She had the most enchanting green eyes, with which she was looking up at me through the fine lattice-work of her lashes. It is truly one of the advantages of having a fiction writer's imagination that, on any given night, no matter how alone you may appear to be, you need not remain so. For some reason I had decided to name my visionary nymph, not something I would call routine during such fanciful flights, and had finally narrowed my choices to either Pamela or Dolores, when there, in my mind's eye, this delightful little vision spoke. Sophia, she said, and it startled the bejesus out of me. Never before had one of my imaginary playmates spoken any word that I had not fully contemplated first, and tested thoroughly for the desired effect. Other than the start it gave me, her speaking that name, Sophia, did little for me at all, so I ignored the phenomenon, attributing it, no doubt, to the undercooked pizza I had consumed earlier, which I should have sent straight back to Luigi with a stern reprimand. Sophia, indeed. By this time I had narrowed my choices to the last, striking Pamela from the list. I decided finally on the name Dolores, in deference to the great Vlad Nabokov. I was just on the verge of having Dolores, whom I intended to call Lolita in a moment of passion, instigate some playful teasing when, once again, she spoke. I am Sophia, she said, the consort of God. If you will restrain your fantasizing, I'd have a word with you. Now I must admit, in the past I've been known to be, shall we say, impatient with the fairer sex, perhaps resulting in my fantastical proficiency. I'm afraid I was no more considerate toward the feelings of the conjured than I would have been had Dolores slash Sophia consisted of flesh and blood. And so, without really thinking or knowing why, I said aloud, Get thee to a nunnery, wench, I have no time for insubordination. Surprisingly, my divine little creation laughed and said, You're the one, all right. You've your father's sense of humor. At this point, allow me to digress momentarily, as I am afraid I have strayed from my original intention. The autobiography of God, as you can imagine, is a work of such tremendous impact to the whole of mankind that I had initially intended only the briefest of introductions before diving headlong into the body of the work. To preface this greatest of all biographical endeavors was, as I stated in my modicum of an introduction, the farthest thing from my mind. But now, as I write this possibly blasphemous prefatory installment, I am becoming more cognizant of its importance if you are to understand the intention of the Almighty in conscripting me for this task. So, in order to do justice to what surely must, even if unwittingly, be the will of God, I have decided to subdivide this preface into just a few tiny chapters, which will help maintain the continuity of the stream of events as they unfolded. So as not to infringe on the actual autobiography, I will identify these prefacing chapters in lowercase Roman numerals, and only if absolutely necessary, a single word to intimate the direction in which the chapter is intended to proceed.
one, Sophia. At this point, something truly extraordinary occurred, which I can only call miraculous. Suddenly, and without warning, I was no longer lying comfortably in my bed, but standing in some kind of misty void facing my own creation, sans the green eyes, which were now a deep blue, who kept insisting she was not Dolores, but in fact Sophia, the consort of God. While I would prefer not to inject my personal habits and dispositions into this extremely terse preface, I must now bring at least this one detail to your attention, as it directly impacted the events which were unfolding in that nebulous, foggy place. As a rule, my somnolent habits include a total absence of bedclothes. Since I had originally clad my divine Dolores in the palest pink baby doll nighty, this is how the now Sophia appeared before me, looking, I might add, as real as any voluptuous young nymphettes. I, however, was decidedly naked, and felt just a touch at a disadvantage. Thus ensued the following dialogue. Shell, where am I? Sophia, you are at the gates of the bardo. I have brought you here that we might discuss... Shell, I'm naked. Sophia, yes, and enjoying my aspect, I see. Shell, well, what do you expect? I created you for a specific purpose, you know. Sophia, I am aware. Shell, so long as we're here. Sophia, I'm busy. Here, I've fetched your robe. Sophia produced and handed me my white satin robe, monogrammed with the crimson letters J.M.S., which I paid a fortune for during one of my frequent visits to that haven of many great writers, Key West. Sophia, well, put it on. Shell, why not just take yours off and we'll be even? Sophia, I have no time to dally, and I am, after all, the consort of God. What possible attraction could I have to a middle-aged mortal man? Perhaps your high opinion of yourself is one of the attributes that has brought you to the Lord's attention. Shell, what Lord? Sophia, put on this robe. Allow me now to further illuminate the conditions of my internment. For some reason, being suddenly ensconced in a physical void with an attractive, young, scantily clad miss concerned me not one iota. In fact, what was on my mind at that moment was precisely what had been on my mind when I was still sandwiched between the sheets of my bed. As I retrieved my robe from the delicate hand of Sophia, I gently took her wrist and drew her toward me. If you are truly the consort of God, and I can't help but notice that you used the word consort instead of wife, Surely in all the eternity at your disposal you could spare just an hour for one who, by my very presence here, must be in some way chosen. After all, you know that, appearing as you do, a creation of my own desire, I will not be able to concentrate on any kind of discussion while this terrible longing plagues my loins. Women, even consorts of God, cannot resist a sustained bombardment of complimentary attention, and I could see Sophia weakening. I continued, how can you expect me to simply ignore the ultimate sweetness and congeniality of your personality, encased as it is in the very object of my immediate desire? Surely, having cavorted in heaven, you must know how much even a brief respite from the trials of earthly existence would mean to me. It worked. And please let us have no moralizing. As I have made perfectly plain, Sophia was not the wife of God, but merely the consort. Actually, it goes beyond the idea of a simple mortal liaison, but I will explain all of this as it falls into the natural progression of my preface. 
For now I will simply remind you to judge not, and inform you of the fact that he is not so jealous a God as you have been led to believe. Sophia, softly, almost in a whisper, her face close to me, anticipating the beginnings of an embrace. Well, perhaps just an hour spent on the mortal coil. Shell, breathing into her ear. Just an hour. I'm afraid I must ask you to suspend your disbelief for just a bit, as what I am about to tell you, although completely true and unadulterated, may stretch the faith of even the firmest of believers. Suddenly I was back in my bed. Only now beside me was the magnificent Sophia. Would it upset your delicate sensibilities if I were to call you Lolita? I asked, taking her into my arms. You really are pressing things, you know, she said, though she still retained her perfect smile. Of course, I repented. How stupid of me, my lovely Sophia. I will not delve into the details and peculiarities of that dalliance that followed, though I will say that an incredible stamina overtook me, and more than the allotted hour was spent before I finally began searching the bedroom for my errant package of cigarettes. Do you know, Sophia said, in a rather sated voice, I might add, that this was my first experience of mortal coitus? Yes, I replied matter-of-factly, retrieving my solid silver zippo bearing the same crest as my robe. I noticed. It always requires an added measure of attention to delicately breach the petals of the as-yet-unblossomed flower. Not to mention clean sheets, I added, strictly within the confines of my own thoughts, of course. I was sitting on the edge of my bed, enjoying the rich Turkish tobacco that is perfectly blended with domestic in a camel cigarette, when I felt Sophia run her fingers down my spine. I'm so glad it is you writing the autobiography. Needless to say, the word writing immediately penetrated my post-coital distraction, and I turned to face her. Writing what? I very nearly demanded. God's autobiography, she sighed, pulling my hand to her lips and taking a long, slow pull from my smoke. Now I must admit that the ever-so-slightest harumph did issue from my diaphragm, but I insist that only a divinely manifest creature could have heard it. It was certainly not my intention to insult the young lady so soon after our tryst, but insulted she was. You doubt me? she demanded. Let me explain to you, at this juncture, that being transported to a misty void and then back into bed with a very pretty girl is just the sort of occurrence that will slip one's mind if given the slightest opportunity. Events of this decidedly supernatural sort are indeed hard to classify in the rational, reality-oriented mind, and have a tendency to be dismissed almost immediately. It is perhaps just this sort of dismissal that had occurred, and now had me wondering how I might go about coaxing young Sophia out of my bed, and on to her way home. "'You've forgotten all about being at the gates of the Bardo, haven't you?' she asked, practically reading my mind. "'No, no, no,' I said, recovering as quickly as possible under the circumstances. "'Gates of the Bardo, consort of God, of course I haven't forgotten.' Just as I said these things, an extremely bright light intruded itself into my bedroom, seemingly from all directions at once, followed by a deep and resounding voice that bellowed, Of course you forgot. The mortal mind is very nearly incapable of cataloging such a memory. Don't dissemble. Two, he himself. I am the way, the truth, and the light, is apparently quite true, especially the light part. The sudden illumination of my room was so brilliant, so stunningly different from any other kind of lighting known to me, 
that I felt I could almost touch it, or grab a handful and keep it. It filled not only the emptiness of space, but also the air, like smoke or steam. There was simply no way to mistake that light, combined with its resonant voice, for anything other than God himself. Realizing the compromised nature of my situation, I decided to get immediately to the heart of the matter and see where I stood. Am I in trouble? I ventured. Should you be? reverberated through the smoke and light. I'm not really sure, I said hesitantly, looking to Sophia, who was smiling wickedly than Minx. I'm afraid young Sophia was a tad less than precise concerning her relationship with you. I believe something along the lines of consort was mentioned, but without warning I was interrupted by a tremendous booming laughter, which lasted quite beyond the limits of any humor I could find in the situation. When it finally ended with what sounded like a little cough, God said, How you do go on about sex. Why is it that my children feel the need to own one another's genitalia? When did I ever say, Thou shalt own thy lover's genitalia? When did I even say thou or thee, for that matter? No, Shelley, thou art not in trouble. Do you mind if I call you Shelley? Actually, I'd be honored. To be in any way compared with the great Percy. Ha, 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 God roared. You do take yourself seriously, don't you? Hopefully hiding the slight perturbation I felt at that moment, exacerbated by Sophia placing her frail little hand on my thigh and laughing as well, I asked, Is there some name I could call you, then? Lord seems so King Jamesian, after all. Again laughter pervaded my room, and Sophia moved her hand up my leg just a bit, causing me some small concern. Finally the laughter abruptly ceased, and God said, I am, but you may call me he himself. At which point the laughter began again, and Sophia laughed so hard she dug her bright red nails into my thigh, causing me to start and stand. Now I've upset you, haven't I? God asked. No, no, Sophia. Then I've embarrassed you. No, it was just... Angered you, then? I'm trying to... Frightened you. She dug her goddamn nails in my leg, I blurted out in frustration, followed by an almost inaudible, uh-oh, which caused both of them to laugh so hard and so long that I ended up sitting down and lighting another cigarette. I thought they would never stop and sat quietly smoking, waiting for it to end. I'm so happy I can entertain you both. I said when it had subsided to mere chuckling. Sophia, be good, he himself tittered. Me? she replied. Okay, enough. Have you told Shelley about the autobiography? Briefly. She smiled, obviously restraining another burst of hilarity. Well, since you've already embraced the flame, so to speak, and taken on creature attributes, which I don't, by the way, recognize, Shelley's handiwork, she said trying unsuccessfully to stifle another guffaw. Ah, God chuckled. Well, then, since you've donned the flesh, you might as well stay and see to the autobiography. For some reason, this stopped Sophia laughing completely. What? she exclaimed. I thought you... you do it. You're there. I see no need to enter time since you've already done it. But I only came for an hour. You've been in time two hours and forty-seven minutes. Did you think I wouldn't notice? No, but... Well, you said you only came for an hour. That was my intention, but... No buts. Stay and see to the writing. Shelley, you don't mind if Sophia stays with you while you write my autobiography, do you? Well, I... Good, it's settled then. Sophia will call me when it's finished, and you can tell me all about your time together. As if you wouldn't know. Sophia exhaled with the smoke of the camel she was lighting. 
For some reason, I find her attitude at that moment to be somewhat perturbed. If you don't want to stay with me, I offered. No, 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 she said, looking at her fingernails and dragging hard on the cigarette. I'll be off then, said he himself, and suddenly the room seemed very dark with the absence of that great light. Three, Partners in Time Sitting before the absence of God is something you can only appreciate if you have sat in the presence of God. Being perhaps singularly experienced, I will let you in on a little secret. It was a relief. While our encounter was indeed brief, he did seem to me somewhat insistent upon being the center of attention. As soon as he himself had departed, I turned to Sophia, who was obviously pouting. Created as she was, pouting suited her, and I found my appetite suddenly renewed. Forget it, she said before I could so much as blink. Forget what, Sophia? I breathed. Look, she said, snubbing out her camel in my sloppy Joe's ashtray. I'm every bit as much God as he is, and I know every thought in your so-called mind. I'm tired, and I don't like it. How do you go to sleep? I've never done it. Never slept? I asked. I told you this is my first time. He's incarnated before, but I haven't. Somebody's got to keep an eye on things while he himself goes off remitting sins or whatever. How, 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 she insisted, exhibiting the first signs of a tantrum. It's easy, I said. Let me get you a glass of wine and none of that. I know what you're thinking. Then just come here and curl up in the crook of my arm. Rest your head on my chest and let my heart beat lull you to dreamland. Dreamland? You'd better get me that wine. No, no, forget it. I don't trust you. I'll let you hold me, but that's all. And if I start dreaming, you'd better wake me up. There's no telling how that will work. Have no fear, I said, taking her soft shoulder into my hand. She placed her gorgeous blonde head on my chest and was quite incredibly asleep in less than a second. I ran my head down her arm and onto her smooth, curvaceous behind. Slowly I rounded that curve and found her tight, flat belly. Stop that, she said, though her mouth never moved. The sound seemed to come from everywhere. Thinking I must have imagined it, I continued my explorations. Suddenly, though Sophia did not move and I saw no hand, my nose was being pinched shut, and that nebulous voice announced, I told you to stop that. Now, there are just so many kinds of abuse a man will allow within the confines of his own bedchamber. I shook Sophia awake. You're dreaming. I said. I was not. Then who was pinching my nose? Who was rubbing my belly? So you were awake. I was not. You just woke me up. Now see here, Sophia, I said, sitting bolt upright. Now see here, Shelley, she exclaimed, sitting up also and squinting her eyes at me. Then she started laughing. Oh, me, how do you marry? She asked, still giggling like a schoolgirl. I had to laugh, too. Oh, she added, so now you think you'll have your way with me. It really isn't fair you're knowing what I'm thinking, and not near as much fun, I'm sure, as trying to decipher me, I said. You're right, she answered, pushing me back down onto the bed. I won't listen to you thinking any more. Tell me, she continued, laying her head once more onto my chest. Am I truly the embodiment of your desire? Unsure if she would keep her promise not to read my thoughts, I answered truthfully. At the moment I created you, you were. 
And, I added quickly, as she lifted her head and looked into my eyes, and you are very nearly what I create most of the time. That seemed to mollify her, and she laid her head back down. You didn't create me, you know, she said after a bit. If anything, I created you. I am the emanation, the anima of God. You creatures have vague psychological semblances of your sexual opposites, but the manifest world is a duplicitous illusion that separates you. It is part of the reason you are so driven to find a mate. But it's an illusion. Ultimately, you are the same as we. In fact, you are we, she said, giggling again. Well, I answered, paying little attention to her monologue. I hope my anima is as lovely as you are. I see what you mean by trying to decipher you. You want to make love again, don't you? You aren't reading my mind, I pressed her. No, she said, reaching down beneath the sheets. I'm reading this. Mmm. Once again into the spirit of things, Sophia and I spent the better part of the night getting thoroughly acquainted. God, I can testify, must be a happy man. Or deity. When I awoke the next morning, I was alone in my bed. Quietly I arose and began a covert search for my new lover, collaborator. Silently I padded down the hall, still in my absence of bedclothes, and peered around the corner into the kitchen. Sophia was standing in front of my open refrigerator. In her hand was an egg, raw, as I had none boiled in there. Not noticing my spying, she began to peel it like a grape. Much to my surprise, the aqueous interior of that egg retained its shape as she gently pulled away the shell. I could clearly see the yolk suspended within its albumen. When she was finished peeling, she held the still egg-shaped but shellless pre-embryo between her fingers and looked at it, seemingly quite satisfied and happy with it and herself. Then she popped it into her mouth and swallowed. Mmm, she said. That was good. I've never eaten before. What else do you have for me to eat? I thought you weren't going to read my thoughts any more, I said, coming out from my hiding place. I didn't, she said, looking me over. I read your presence. Same thing, I said, coming up behind her and wrapping my arms around her naked shoulders. Is not, she insisted. I can't help but feel you, you know. I want to eat more. What shall I eat? Go fetch my robe and you'll find one for you in the closet. I'll make you an enormous breakfast. Cooked. I suppose I'll have to wear clothes the whole time I'm in this illusion, won't I? Not the whole time, I replied, amazed that she was affecting me again already. Not now. I want to eat, eat, eat. You're reading my thoughts. Am not. You're very obvious. She was right. Being an extremely proficient cook, I decided to go all out for Sophia's first breakfast. Eggs Benedict are extremely filling, so I fried a little bacon, made some toast and coffee, poured juice, and thought surely I had provided sufficient fare. I was mistaken. Fortunately, I enjoy cooking, as Sophia kept me shackled to the stove the entire morning. After practically inhaling two double eggs Benedict, along with a full pound of bacon, she had me make French toast, waffles, Eggos be damned, I have a waffle iron. Pancakes, oatmeal, four different kinds of cold cereal. Kicks being her favorite, she ate the whole box. And grits. After all of which, she insisted on trying a glass of instant breakfast along with some Pop-Tarts. The Pop-Tarts, she informed me, were terrible, though she ate four. My repertoire being exhausted, as well as my larder, I thought to clean up the now disaster area that was my kitchen when Sophia asked, What are you doing? Cleaning up this mess, I responded. 
I don't suppose you'd like to try it with me. I'll be at it until mid-afternoon. Don't you want to make me more things to eat? You're joking, I exclaimed, truly incredulous. You have eaten me out of house and home. If you wish to remain the object of my desire, you'll never eat like this again. Why not? she asked, appearing honestly puzzled by my statement. Because you will become hideously obese is why. Do you want to spend your time on earth fat? Like this? she asked. I turned from the sink, my hands still immersed in the soapy water, to see at least two hundred pounds more of Sophia than there had been when I'd last checked. The robe I'd furnished her with was open, and an enormous breast, perhaps weighing thirty pounds itself, lay on the table before her. Ah! I screamed, twirling the rest of the way around, and sending soap suds flying everywhere. I closed my eyes for a moment, and when I reopened them, Sophia was once again her petite self. Don't you ever do that again, I scolded. Then make me something else to eat. I can manifest anybody I choose, so you needn't worry about my becoming obese. Anybody? Yes. I'm not incarnate, you know. Only manifest. I'm energy. Light of a sort. Slowed down to a vibratory state of matter. I can change my energy into any shape I please. And I don't have to read your thoughts to tell what you are thinking now. If you let me try more foods, I'll let you have me however you like, but later. Eating is quite extraordinary, and I'm not finished experiencing it. Yes, but Sophia, you must at least let me clean up my poor kitchen if I'm to prepare you another smorgasbord. It's done, she said. It isn't done, I just... I began turning my back to my sink full of dishes when another short scream escaped me. My kitchen was immaculate. Everything was back in its place. And trust me, I have a place for everything. That's incredible. Oh, it is not. I told you this is an illusion. I can make the illusion do whatever I like. So can you. You just can't seem to believe it. Actually, you do it all the time without even realizing it. It just takes longer for the changes to occur, because you go about it in a very awkward manner. You think, 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 and you plan and scheme, and you say things you don't mean to say, and it all affects the illusion, see? I'm afraid I don't. Of course you don't. If you did, you wouldn't have soap bubbles halfway up your arms. Now, are you going to feed me or not? Why not just illusion yourself up something? I asked, curious to see if she would. Because I wouldn't know how it should taste. I told you I've never eaten before. I could make pancakes now, because I've eaten them. But I want something different. Make me some pancakes, then. Suddenly a great stack of steaming pancakes appeared on the table. Retrieving a fork from my utensil drawer, I walked over and tried them. I was indeed surprised to find that they tasted exactly like my own version, right down to the little bit of real vanilla extract I put in the batter. That's incredible, I said once again. Would you like some Beggs Benedict? she asked. No, I'm not really a breakfast person. Tell me, what do you want to eat now? Ice cream! Being a great fan of frozen confections, I had several varieties of ice cream in my freezer. I started Sophia on a pint of Ben and Jerry's Chunky Monkey and decided to try a little experiment. While Sophia dug her tablespoon into the rich banana ice cream, I went to my bedroom, retrieved my wallet, and extracted a freshly minted $50 bill. Ugly stuff, these new bills, but they do spend. Sophia, I said when I stood once more before her, I need these to buy you more kinds of food. Can you make me some? Money? she asked, taking her eyes only momentarily off the chunks of chimp she was devouring. 
Yes, I replied. Money. Look behind you. I turned and screeched for the third time that morning. There, stacked from the floor to exactly my eye level, were twelve columns of fifty-dollar bills. Nuff? she asked, sucking her spoon. Quite, I answered her. Being, shall we say, on the cautious side, I checked several of the bills and noted happily that they all had different serial numbers. Then I began uncontrollably to laugh. Is the money funny? she asked. I certainly hope not. It is real, isn't it? I asked, turning my laugh into a frown of concern. Nothing here is real, she added perfunctorily. It's as real as any other money is. Then let's take of it and get you something to eat, poor starved thing. I know a restaurant where you can indulge yourself until the chef pleads for mercy. I thought you were going to make me things to eat. Ah, my little imp, I'm but a pale impostor compared to Chef Ignacio. You deserve far better than my humble abilities can construct. I loved those waffles, she said, endearing herself to me. Waffles? For you there must be truffles. There must be rainbow trout done almondine and beef bonion. But first we have to find you something to wear. All you came with was that cute little nighty, and I surely can't take you to Ignacio's in my frumpy old robe. I'll have to run out and buy you a dress. What is your size? Perhaps a two? Show me, she said, scraping the bottom of her now empty ice cream container. Show you what? I asked. What you want me to wear? Ah, I said, getting the idea. Quickly I made my way to the living room and dumped the magazine holder onto the floor. I was about to leaf through a copy of Esquire when I noticed Sophia had followed me, still clinging to the empty chunky monkey. That one, she said, pointing with her spoon. I looked and noticed she was pointing to an old issue of Cosmopolitan, which I did not bring into the house. It must have been that bitch Angela, before we had our little parting scene. I was about to give Sophia a short lesson on good taste when I heard her say, How's this? I looked up again and she was clad in the very same gold sequin gown as the cover girl on that cosmopolitan. The neckline plunged all the way to her navel. I was all set to respond in the negative, when my neck snapped into a violent double-take. That particular gown looked at least one hundred percent better on Sophia than it did on the model. Thoughts of taking it off her assaulted me. You like it, don't you? And no, I'm not reading your thoughts. I said I wouldn't, and I won't. But I'm getting very good at reading your face, am I not? You are, I said, just a little too reverently, I might add. I recognized that voice of mine and knew, was afraid, was petrified that I was falling in love. Never again. I had sworn a solemn oath. But then I hadn't met Sophia yet, had I? Four. Ignacio. It would be, at best, an understatement to say I am no clothes horse. In that regard, I'd probably have been better off being born a woman, as I seem only to find female apparel pleasing to the eye. Do not, however, deign to extrapolate. I have no abhorrent fetishes in that particular arena. My point is, I actually own very little of what could in any way be considered male fashion that would complement the high style in which Sophia was now attired. Though, I will say I wear my usual 501s and sports shirts well, I couldn't help searching my closet in the hope of finding something just a little extra. Sophia's extravagant appearance, I'm afraid, had me slightly embarrassed concerning my wardrobe. 
Once again, she made me wonder if she was keeping that promise concerning her telepathy. Would you like me to make you some clothes? How about this? Confronting me in my bedroom closet, Sophia had in her hand the copy of Cosmo. She was pointing, her fingers now painted the same metallic gold as the models on the magazine, to a photo of an extremely dapper young man wearing some sort of baggy pants that cinched tight at the ankles. His shirt was a sort of blooming-to-the-wrists affair. The outfit reminded me why I prefer the simpler clothes of a simpler time. No, Sophia, I said, having come to my senses. It is kind of you to think of me, but I will stay myself in spite of myself, unless, of course, my quieter attire embarrasses you. For a moment she said nothing, but squinted her eyes at me, looking somewhat puzzled. A sort of recognition slowly appeared on her face in the guise of one who was experiencing a revelation. Then she laughed aloud. Oh, Shelley, she said through her laughter, you almost lost me for a moment. Reading you without your thoughts is fun, and for a second there it was a challenge. Actually, I think if I had read your thoughts just then, I wouldn't really have understood you at all. But now I do, and I love you all the more for it. Suddenly, before my eyes, Sophia's wonderful gown dissolved into a very tight pair of bell-bottom jeans and a skimpy pink tank top with a little fringe of lace on the straps and neck. Her finger and toenails turned the same pink as her top, and her blonde hair grew straight and long, while a red bandana fashioned itself into a headband. "'You are reading my thoughts,' I insisted. "'No, but I did look back into time for just a moment, to where you mostly remain. I am not sure how it happened, and I will always endeavor not to allow it again, but for some reason I still can't quite fathom a tear slid down my cheek. At the same instant that it did, an identical pearl of moisture appeared on Sophia's beautiful face. "'Please don't do that,' she said, wiping mine away. "'I will try,' I replied, touching her own tear with my finger. "'Then put something on and let's go,' she said in a happy, rambunctious voice. "'Or am I going to be forced to dress you?' she continued, pointing again to the picture. Both of us doubled up with laughter at that, I trying to get some jeans and a shirt out of the closet. Sophia pulling my robe off of me and yelling through her squeals and laughs, Hurry, 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 before I decide to eat you! Mmm, I said, ceasing all activity. No, she insisted, stomping her foot. You'll be dessert, and you shall be mine. Then dress so we can go! Fortunately, fashion being the fleeting moment-to-moment -moment apparition it is these days, Ignacio's has no formal dress requirements though most of their customers, consisting generally of the more well-to-do, dress rather to the nines. As a rule, reservations are required, but since I am a personal friend of Chef Ignacio, and owing to the time of day, we were seated at once. I rarely do lunch at Iggy's, and dinner only as sales of my work will allow, so most of the staff was unfamiliar to me. Our waiter turned out to be a somewhat frail-looking young man who reeked of a particularly sweet-smelling cologne. "'Can I get you something to drink?' he asked. "'Do you have any instant breakfast?' Sophia asked him. Still in a jovial mood, I couldn't help but laugh. "'She's kidding, of course. Sophie, be good. "'Would you like a cocktail before lunch?' "'I told you I'd do that later,' she said, smiling at me. "'At times I couldn't help but wonder if she wasn't orchestrating every word "'that was spoken by everyone who spoke. "'Some wine, maybe,' I tried, opening my eyes wide and hoping she would either finally understand or stop playing games. "'Do you have some green tea?' she asked our waiter, and I swear she was making eyes at him. 
Yes, I think we do. And you, you, sir? This poor man had not the constitution for Sophia's shenanigans. Iced tea for me, with plenty of lemon. Right away. I watched our waiter leave, and then turned to see Sophia laughing into her hand. You're a very bad girl, I scolded, trying not to smile. I'm the consort of God, and you shouldn't forget that. You mistake me for a foreigner or naive child. When you do that, I can't help but oblige you. Suddenly, and believe it or not, for the first time, I honestly realized just who I was with, just who I had bedded and cooked for and embezzled, not quite the right word, a dozen tall piles of money from. A slight twinge of fear overcame me. You must not fear, Shelley, she told me quite seriously. Fear is the mind-killer. It is the little death that leads to total oblivion. Hey, I said, recognizing those words as my fear vanished. That's straight out of Frank Herbert's Dune, if I'm not mistaken. I've seen that eternal monkey sitting at his typewriter, Shelley. Everything that's ever or will ever be written. Try hard to understand just who I am. You're scaring me again. You were pretty damned brave when you asked me to make you that money. Perhaps that was not such a good idea. Don't be silly. The money doesn't matter. Your intention is what matters. We'd give you anything, anything you want. All you need do is ask. It is truth that matters. Do you understand? I have a feeling I'm going to. I have a very strong feeling about that. So you do, she smiled. So you do. We sat in Ignacio's for almost four hours, as Sophia ate every last thing on the menu. I ordered only quiche Lorraine, but sampled this and that from her many plates of delicacies. When there was simply nothing left for her to try, I asked our aromatic waiter for the check. It came to $383.83. As soon as I plucked my wallet from the back pocket of my jeans, I knew something was wrong. I had put at least a thousand dollars in there as soon as Sophia had produced it, but the billfold I held now was anorexically thin. Sure enough, when I opened it, it was empty. It took no special trick, I am sure, to read my face at that moment, as I must have gone quite pale indeed. Oh, me, I forgot to tell you, Sophia began. I put all that money into the washing machine while you finished changing. I noticed it was just a touch dirty. I also put a gallon of bleach in with it. That should clean it up, don't you think? I don't suppose you can pay this, then? I asked rather sheepishly, handing her the tally of her edithon. I'm the consort of God. Why would I carry such filthy stuff around? It isn't sanitary. Just as I had placed my head in my hands, Ignacio made one of his rare appearances, coming out of the kitchen on the heels of our waiter. I could see the skinny, perfumed fellow pointing at Sophie. I wanted to crawl under the table. Dressed all in white, his chef's hat standing starched on his head, Ignacio marched his girthy self over to our table and announced, I had to see this lady I eat everything on my menu. And who's a she wit but Mikey? Then, as is his unfortunate custom, Ignacio pinched my cheek for an extended moment and exclaimed, Mikey and Mikey, how are you doing? I'm a missing you as it been so long. You still are so skinny you know eat a stuff. But you, he turned, roaring to Sophia, you so small a girl and you a eat everything on my menu. I'm a no believer, but a doogie here is a telling me. That's a miracle, I must say, when I'm a see you. Ah, Mikey, you got a such girl and you would no come up back in the kitchen with her? You know a show of a girl? What's the matter, you? I mumbled something about being sorry, absolutely mortified at the thought of having to make some arrangement about that check. But Ignacio announced, 
You no pay a penny today, you hear me? You argue I'm a box of you ears. For such a girl, I'm a no ticker on a red cent, you hear me? I'm a even tip a doogie for you. Hi, right, doogie. You come here. Here's a fifty dollar for you from a banky and his lady. What's your name, a pretty girl? Sophia, Sophia responded, smiling immensely. Ah, Sophia, that's my mama's name. And I'll bet she used to kiss you on your forehead, just like this, Sophie said, getting up and planting a gentle smooch on Iggy's sweaty brow. Madonna Mia, Ignacio howled. She's a angel, Mackie. You keep a dis one, you hear, yo friend? You keep a dis one. Over and over he howled those words as he disappeared back toward his kitchen. Even when the huge swinging doors had banged shut behind him, I could hear him calling out to me. You keep a dis one, Mackie. Five. A beautifully ugly scene. The ride home from Iggy's was a long and silent one. I'm sure you can, from what you have read of my personality heretofore, deduce that I am of a temperamental, artistic nature. No, let me be even more forthright. I am a highly educated, well-read artist with an inflated ego, who was at one time convinced that everyone he had ever encountered was a fool. During that lengthy return from Ignacio's, I could not help but dwell on my then sincere conviction that I had been made a fool of. With great embarrassment, I must report, honesty having become, of necessity, my policy, that I pouted. Sophia made teasing, pouting faces at me during the entire ride, which I am sure were astonishingly accurate impersonations. By the time we had reached my abode, anger was rising in me, still well corked, but being shaken severely like a fine bottle of Corbel Brut. Sophia entered first, while I, hardcore chauvinist to the end, held the door. As soon as I had trudged in behind her, shoulders hunched and stewing, she turned on me and protruded her lower lip so far you could have hung a bucket on it. Poor me, she said. The cork exited the bottle uncoaxed. I exploded. My tirade is vague to me now, but I am sure it included such lines as, I've done everything to please you, and I accepted you gracefully into my home, and this one I am positive I uttered, you slutty, conniving little goddess bitch. Oops. At this point, it is imperative that I explain to the less astute reader, and you who are fools, that I was being instructed. Always. From the moment Lolita became Sophia, no jot or tittle of word or action wasn't preordained, written and edited, totally choreographed for my edification. We are angry, was Sophia's reply. Ah, anger. How long has she been with me that I have never seen her? He has seen his, and you have seen his. Devil, you say? You are worse than fools. But then what inkling do you have even of your own psychology, much less that of he himself? But now, now we are angry, and finally, finally, Persephone descends. Would you like to know my name, creature? Dare you? Never in my life had I experienced a fear so great that it buckled my knees. But there I found myself, kneeling, shaking, petrified at what I was seeing. If anything, Sophia became more beautiful before my eyes, terrifyingly beautiful. Suddenly she was taller by inches than my meager six feet. Her eyes became the blue of glacial ice, and her hair curled in platinum ringlets nearly to the floor. The clothes she'd been wearing burst at every seam, but somehow she remained clad in them. A smile that I, at that time, could only have described as evil spread across her gorgeous face, and her brilliantly white teeth seemed extraordinarily sharp. What was once Sophia threw her magnificent, malevolent head back and laughed. 
The sound of it. The sound of it. How can I explain? The world of fire. That was the sound of her laughter. Creature, she cried when that roar of flame finally ceased. Sex is your pleasure, is it not? And wealth. Raise yourself up and experience the true raptures that can only be known when sex and violence mingle. Revert your fear once again to anger and join me, and I will give you the world. No tricks, no subtle games and lessons like that insignificant sow Sophia employs. My promises are solid gold and diamond-studded. Rise, get up off your knees and embrace me. Together we will consume until nothing is left. Even within the egotistical state that I lived my life, I have never harbored delusions of being a hero. Somewhere within, unbeknownst to me, I had accepted the fact that I was a coward standing behind the great balloon of my ego. I was mistaken, and this, my friends and fools, changed me eternally, or renewed my internal nature. Words fail. I rose, though my legs still shook, absolutely sure that my death was imminent. It had finally dawned on me, no, speared me, skewered me, that a much greater reality had invaded my mundane existence. I understood the truth of it, and the spurious nature of what I had been living. I faced this magnificent creature, knowing her offer was genuine, and believing that denying it could only result in my demise. How I gathered the strength and courage to speak, I do not know, but in a steady, even voice I said, with conviction, I am sorry, Sophia. And there she stood, petite in her untorn clothes, as she had been only minutes before. A look of total exultation adorned her adorable face. Great unspeakable Abraxas, she exclaimed. That was exhilarating. Slowly she eased herself into my arms and whispered into my ear. That was for my benefit as well as yours. The deity evolves along with creation, which are one and the same. He himself has, for two thousand years now, been evolved to this point, but I have not. Now your new age can truly begin. Finally she is known to me, and this knowledge will spread. Consciousness, I have come to understand, is a dubious concept amongst we creatures. We think we are conscious, but we are dreaming, dreaming, dreaming. We live in the past, the future, neither of which exist for us, yet we think we are conscious. What we are is barely awake and mobile. In Sophia's arms I lost all semblance of mobility and wakefulness. I passed out. The first sensation of returning to some condition of consciousness was a feeling of silky cold touching my lips. Then I tasted bananas. I opened my eyes to find myself lying in bed, with Sophia pressing a spoonful of chunky monkey to my lips. I opened my mouth and accepted her offer. I thought this would still be appropriate, but I think you may just have a chance to evolve, my little ape. Then she kissed the ice cream from my lips. Fear is the mind killer, was all I could think to say as the beginnings of that terror I had felt threatened to return. Sophia placed her right palm against my left cheek. A look of such sincere something, love perhaps, or sympathy, appeared on her face that my anxiety was immediately dispelled. You must not fear me, Shelley. I love you more than you are capable of understanding, and she is gone. You took her out and you put her away, just like that. You are my hero. He himself battled with that for ages, and through his evolution into a state of pure love, I also learned. I gained great understanding and wisdom, but not experience. Those few moments were all I needed. I know now 
am aware. She exists, is of necessity a part of me, but will hereafter be under my control. I cannot be influenced. I have to tell you something, though. Had you accepted her offer, well, she put it quite precisely. Together the two of you would have consumed the world. That is what would have happened if it could have, but it couldn't. There is an original man deep beneath the layers of muck and mire the world has caked you in, and we are quite aware of you. Should you ever become aware of you? Well, we'll see. For now, just lay still, and let me feed you this monkey. Six. A Fairy's Tale After just several spoonfuls of Sophia's sweet solace, the exhaustion of terror and overwhelming revelation claimed me once more. Sleep zippered around me like a body bag, and within this shroud I dreamed. I was standing on what seemed to be a smoldering, rocky hill, bleak and devoid of foliage. The sky was the dark of impending doom, and directly in front of me stood an enormous castle. High on a parapet of this green-gray edifice stood the magnificent monster that now dwells tethered in Sophia's psyche. She was clad in the standard garb of a witch, but instead of black, her pointed hat and flowing robe were metallic green that shone even in the absence of sunlight. All around her, in the sky, flying monkeys, male and female, cavorted and screeched while her wicked majesty laughed like a raging inferno. Suddenly she raised her arms, threw back her head, and the monkeys began to copulate in flight. The males produced tremendous erections, and the females bent, showing bright red vulva. When they'd finished their hideous coupling, the dominant ones of each pair, sometimes the males, sometimes the females, turned on their partners and tore them limb from limb, consuming each appendage as it was torn away. Limbless trunks of the vanquished and eaten fell to earth and struck the ground with horrible thunking sounds. Those simians that remained winged about until once more they paired and joined, and a heinous scene repeated itself. As I stood watching from that rank tour, feeling my stomach churn with nausea, I noticed the witch had spied me, was staring with eyes that shone upon me like spotlights. "'I'll get you, my pretty!' she screamed. So terrible was the sound of her venomous voice that, mercifully, it drove me from sleep. My eyes opened wide like spring-loaded shutters, and I saw Sophia's lovely face only inches from mine. She had straddled my body on hands and knees, and seemed to be studying my face intently. She wore a look of astonished concern. "'You have watched the movie The Wizard of Oz many too many times,' she said, her countenance still pinched with concern. "'You saw that, then?' I whispered. "'How could I not?' she answered, matter-of-factly. Suddenly the entire monstrous scene flashed through my head again as if my mind had to be sure what it had seen. Then the tears came, and I could not stop. I could feel them running like rivulets down my face as I watched Sophia match me tear for tear. Then, gently, she dropped from her straddling position and laid down upon me, her head upon my chest. For some reason I thought she was listening to my heart and did not move, but I could not stop the glaciers of tears that were melting within my eyes. Sophia lifted her head and looked at me again, taking my face into her hands. Who is it crying, Shelley? You or me? How can this be that I am unsure? All in one day. Have we taken too much? Have I done you harm? Oh, please stop crying. I can't bear this pain you're in. As quickly as it started, my fit of tears ceased. Suddenly a great feeling of sympathy, damn near to pity, for Sophia overwhelmed me. I took her in my arms and kissed her tenderly. No tone whatsoever of sex tainted that kiss. 
It was only a dream. Don't be scared, I said, stroking her forehead and trying to wipe away her flow of tears. The look on her face remained so pitiful that I almost succumbed, almost cried again with her. Instead, I smiled and tweaked her nose. Do you remember, before I fell asleep, you told me you loved me more than I could comprehend? Yes, she sobbed. I do. Well, you don't, I told her. Not unless you can't fathom my love. You said you can't help but feel what I feel. Can't you feel it now? Looking quite amazed, she said to me, Taken to your limit, to the ends of endurance, here you find yourself. We knew it, but I love you in time and space, and I've never been here before. Fear I cannot abide, but for a moment, in time, I thought I had harmed you. Dreams are not my domain, but if I had somehow sent you to such a place, I cannot fear it. I could not bear it, either. Again I held her close and whispered, If a mere mortal can just this once instruct the consort of God, trust me when I say it was just a dream. I've had worse. When I said that, her head snapped up to face me. Intently she searched my eyes. I still haven't broken my promise to not read your mind, so please tell me that isn't so. Don't lie to me, even out of love. I've had worse, Sophia, I insisted. And if you aren't reading my mind, how do you know what I dreamed? Slowly, softly, she said, I didn't read your mind, Shelley. I went there with you. The tone of her voice frightened me again. I'm not sure I want to understand that right now. No, no more. You've had a very eventful day. I'd make love to you now. I feel desire, but it isn't yours. No, it's not on your mind, is it? I didn't know what to say. She was absolutely correct. That dream was still just a stone's throw away, but I felt such a need to please her somehow. Just as she'd said to me, I couldn't bear the thought of hurting her. I must never lie to you, Sophia, I heard myself saying, and then an incredible smile spread across her face. I know what you need, a fairy's tale, and since you have been so good, that's what you're going to get. If you want one, tell me, will you lay in my arms and hear a real fairy's tale? Yes, I said, and the delight in her eyes and on her face filled me with such peace and comfort. Suddenly I felt comforted and safe. Then the magic began, all in a sparkling haze of what the ancient Celts must have called fairy glamour. Sophia began to change. Her ears grew delightful little points, and her nose turned up and pug. Her golden hair became short, tight curls, and from high on her shoulder blades, delicate gossamer wings unfolded. As if powdered with fine silver glitter, her skin sparkled, and she took me in her arms, then laid my head in her lap. Gently she stroked my hair, and lightly ran her fingernails down my back. "'Art thee comfy?' she asked in a voice that seemed just a pitch or a tone higher than her own. "'Mmm,' I sighed, then turned my face up to look at her again. Even from that state of extreme relaxation, her fairy princess guise caused a certain stirring deep within me. "'Later!' she said in her pixie voice. Lay quiet now and hear my tale. Once upon a time there was a little boy god who was playing with one of his worlds. Like most little boys, he loved to play with his dinosaurs. All manner of lizards did he create, some great and ferocious that pounced and gobbled, some docile and lumbering that craned long necks into trees and chewed the sweet and fragrant leaves. His predators delighted him as sometimes he'd snarl and claw and bite, or soar through the air on leathern wings to swoop down and snatch up some other creature he'd play. The colors and shapes and sizes and sounds 
were so myriad on his wonderful playground world that he practically spent his childhood there. And, of course, as with all child's play, he learned as he delighted. Time passed as it does on worlds. Ages came and went as they do for gods. And, as does happen with every boy-child, there came an age when little boy-god felt stirrings within that turned his attention away from his dinosaur play. Somewhere within his light a tiny voice was striving to say, and more and more he tried to hear and find that voice, that together they might play. Even for gods one must seek to find, which means everywhere, including the mind. Adolescence is a troubling thing, a time to find you must give to receive. Let some part of you go and see what it will bring. While his childhood toys roamed aimlessly about, the growing god sought the voice that now began to tease and sing, until finally, one age, she peered out and smiled, and their meeting was a wondrous thing. Now you must understand that childhood never ends all at once, and these two became one great playmate as he showed her his toy world of dinosaurs. Yes, your creations are fine for a boy, but now will you also play with me? Can we build one together for we? So he looked in her eyes, and saw what she saw, and his playmate love grew so strong that it filled him with awe. From out of the ethers he plucked a great stone, and hurled it down on his little world. When he had put away all of his little boy toys, he started again, but this time with Sophie, and they made wonderful beasts, all furry and soft, striped ones that purred and crouched and prowled, and tiny ones that hid and scurried about. Together they made such a wonderful world, and they galloped and leapt and flew through its air. For age upon age there they stayed, playing and learning and loving in ways that grew and grew, until one day he said, You're the love of my life. And she told him she knew. From that age on he was no longer a boy, though still very young. He'd outgrown many toys. But he always remembered that even full-grown gods must play. And, though many things have changed from then until now, he and Sophia are playmates still to this very day. That night I slept in the arms of a fairy princess, with scenes of her tale playing through my mind. Even asleep I knew she was holding me, as I watched dinosaurs come and go, saw jungles fill with magnificent beasts, and looked down on worlds from incredible heights. Just as dawn was breaking, before the spell could fade, I began an incredible love with a fairy maid. Before that morning's lengthy love ended, it was again Sophia in my arms, exactly as I wanted it to be. Seven. Dilemma. Inevitably, an afterglow of sighs permeated the room. Somehow it seemed to meld with birdsong outside my window. Thin streamers of morning sun sneaking past the curtains joined the harmonious nature of things. Sophia and I, well tangled, held each other as if to squeeze away any pocket of air that might come between our skin upon skin. Then it dawned on me that it was I holding her tightly. Too tightly. I kissed her, and, again, it was a kiss devoid of sexual intention. What struck me then I cannot describe, verbose though I may be. I released Sophia completely, and shied a few inches away, propping myself on a pillow, and looking seriously into her eyes. When I spoke, when I said to her what I did not know I was going to say, my voice was at once filled with fear and awe and reverence. Even to me it sounded foreign, not my own. I've fallen in love with you, Sophia. Sophie looked down at her hands. Don't lose yourself so quickly, Shelley. Listen to what you just said. The key word is fallen. But what can I do? 
This is not something within the sphere of my control, and I know I'm going to lose you. God's autobiography. I didn't even acknowledge it as a legitimate concern. Now I realize once you tell me, once I've written it, you'll leave. I'm so afraid you're going to say, Okay, let's go. Time to write the thing and be done with it. Then what will I do without you? And what in God's name will I do with his autobiography? It's not exactly a seller's market out there, you know. Sophie, I love you. Can you understand this simple, mortal love? Will you feel my heart when it breaks? Sophia seemed unmoved as I spoke. When I ran out of words, she finally looked at me. Her face was blank, unreadable. You have been in love before, Shelley, and it always ended the same. Would you have me live with you? Set up housekeeping? Maybe have a child? When she said that, she shivered, as if revulsion had crept up her spine. Or would you have me keep you in a constant state of infatuation, changing from fairy queen to movie starlet? The sun has written twice since my arrival, and already you have fallen. I know I have put you through a lot. Layers of foul learning have been dissolved, changing you. And though you may not realize it, you are grateful. I am your benefactress. Stay calm and centered. Stay out of the future. It doesn't exist for you, only here and now. As for the autobiography, you are not ready to receive it, so relax. But, and I mean this, autobiography or no, not he himself can keep me here if I decide this infatuatory love-falling of yours is not abating, and soon. Love is always spelled with a capital L. That other thing is lowercase, much, much lower. Learn the difference quickly. I have enjoyed this sexuality, our joining, but there can be no more, not with you in this ridiculous puppy-love state of mind. With that, she threw away the covers and walked naked from the room. Just outside the bedroom door, she announced, Breakfast is on the table. You need to eat. I donned my robe, feeling suddenly very exposed. At the same time, that expensive, monogrammed wrap seemed somehow a ridiculous vestment. Slowly, tentatively, I made my way to the kitchen. The table was filled with every sort of breakfast fare I'd cooked for Sophia the previous morning. The cereals and Pop-Tarts, however, were missing. Sophie was sitting, poking her fork at a waffle. She was dressed in a frumpy terry-cloth robe, hideously pink, which she must have conjured, for I keep no such female garment. She herself was different. Her hair was tousled, and her eyes seemed less blue, less intense, and ever so slightly crossed. There was the trace of a crook to her nose, as if at one time it may have been broken. Had she not been Sophia, still well entrenched in my heart, I might have called her plain. Believe it or not, I found her more beautiful than ever. No, she was cute. Her attempt to stultify her beauty made her cute and... What? Available? Attainable. It isn't working, Sophie, I said, unable to stifle a smile. If anything, I think I love you more as you are now. What do you mean, as I am now? I just got up. Should I set an alarm and put on makeup before you have to set eyes on me? I've cooked all your favorites, and what do you do? You make remarks about how I look. As she spoke, her voice attained a sobbing quality, until finally she seemed to choke on her words and began to cry. Placing myself behind her pitifully crying in that chair, I wrapped my arms around her and whispered, Sophia, you can't make me unlove you. Quite to my surprise, she released herself from my embrace and backhanded the waffle she'd been poking across the room. And no more Sophia or Lolita. I'm Pamela, just plain Pam. If you can't accept me, can't make love to me without imagining me to be someone else, then sleep alone. You take the bedroom. 
I'll sleep in the little room from now on. I won't leave you, Michael. Believe it or not, I honestly love you. I'll cook your meals and wash your clothes and clean your house, but I won't be made an imaginary harem. Eat. You need to eat. I'm going to take a shower, and when I've washed all the Lolita and Sophia off me, I'm going to be myself. I hope you can live with it. I sincerely hope you can. And out of the kitchen she stormed. I thought to go after her, but smiled instead, seating myself in the already worn chair she'd abandoned. It was just too early for another lesson, and she'd been right as both Sophia and Pamela. I needed to eat. Everything I consumed was exactly the way I like it, as if I cooked it myself. Being full felt good, and I couldn't help daydreaming just a bit about what Sophia and I might do with this glorious day. The autobiography was obviously on hold. Perhaps a trip to the zoo. I could still see the animals growing and roaming through the fairy's tail. When, finally, Sophia emerged from her shower, she was dressed in an unflattering, flowered frock of sorts, and bore traces of makeup poorly applied. Without a word, she began cleaning up the breakfast dishes. "'Are you actually going to wash those?' I asked. "'When have I ever not kept a clean house for you, Michael?' she said, never turning away from the sink. "'Okay, Sophia, I get it,' I sighed. "'But you can't expect me to reach in my chest and pull out love like some cancerous growth.' Sophia slash Pamela spun around, her hands full of suds. "'So loving me is a cancer to you? And how can you call me Sophia when you know how it hurts me? If I had anyone left, any family at all, I'd walk out that door this instant. You think because I'm alone you can treat me like this. Well, you can't. Wash your own dishes. Cook your own meals. Just leave me alone.' Then she was gone again, and I heard the door to the little room slam. As badly as I'd like to have produced an amused smile, I could not. This very sort of thing is what I call a dilemma. I am not fond of dilemmas, and avoid them when possible, especially those involving women. This dilemma involved somewhat more than one's typical woman. Employing the pose of the thinker, I pondered these circumstances. Okay, Sophia had appeared to me in different guises, one being my own sumptuous creation another being an absolutely gorgeous terror, and of course that of a fairy queen. Each I had accepted at face value, and each had instructed me invaluably. If Pamela, the name I had rejected on that fateful night, yes, I am at least that astute, was to eschew my next lesson, then I would also take her at face value. Sophia had it in mind to instruct me concerning my puppy love. Well, we'd see. I was truly a changed man after a single day with herself. Perhaps I could prove myself. Getting a grip? No. Getting into character, I padded down the hall to the little room. Gently I tapped on the door. Pamela, I said with no hint of sarcasm. Pammy, honey, please let me in. I've been an ass. Yes, Michael, you're an ass. Will you at least let me talk to you? You were right, everything you said. But I understand now. I love you too much to have you shut away from me in that little room. Please open the door. Just hear me out. No more Lolita? Never, I replied. Sophia, she added. Only my precious Pammy. I heard a rustling, and then the door opened just enough for her to peer out. You haven't called me Pammy in so long. I've wanted to hear you say it so badly. Gently I pushed open the door and took her in my arms. Pamela's body was much the same as Sophia's but not so taut and toned. There was an incredible softness to her, as if sponge instead of muscle clothed her bones. I picked her up, 
she was light as a feather, and placed her on the day-bed, which, other than a small dresser and a lamp, was the only piece of furniture in that unused room. Pamela seemed amazed at every gesture I made. Slowly I undressed her as I kissed her mouth, her forehead, her eyes. Her body was not unpleasing, but as I've said, this was not Sophia as I had known her during our bouts of heat. Pamela was awkward. I can find no other words to explain it. My fluid movements always seemed to be counter to her insecure attempts to please. Eventually the deed was accomplished, and I held her close to me, hoping the encounter was at least significant for her. Suddenly she wrapped herself around me like silk, clinging and tight. Michael, she said, I want to have a baby. I didn't take my pill this morning. I decided either not to make love to you again, or if we did, to have your child. At this point the word dilemma occurred to me again. How long would Sophia continue this? I was beginning to actually wonder if she'd fled and left me with Pamela. Or perhaps that witch was not so under her control as she'd assumed. I looked into Pamela's eyes, and something occurred. That slightly crossed attitude corrected itself, and the deeper blue returned. You once said you loved me, told me you'd fallen head over heels. Then those eyes reverted to Pamela's, and she said, A baby, and maybe you could get a real job. I don't mean stop writing, but something secure for the baby and me. I'm not asking you to answer this instant, but soon. Soon, Michael, because I'm not taking the pills any more. So if you want to make love to me, I'll know you want our child, and to grow old together. Then she pecked me on the cheek, threw on that natty pink robe, and said, Now let me go clean up the kitchen. Why don't you shower and go get a newspaper? See if there isn't a paying job for a good writer in there. How does one wait out a god? For days I endured the domestic Pamela. After sufficient nagging, I even pretended to scan the classifieds for work. Propped in bed at night, I watched her perusing books full of names, and listened as she said, how about Martin if it's a boy? Or, oh look, Tatiana, what a pretty name for a girl. She insisted upon intercourse every night, but pleasure was not on her mind, only procreation. So dull and perfunctory were these sessions that one night I roughly turned her over and took her from behind. On and on for as long as I could, I drove her hard and deeply, hoping for a squeal, a moan, a peep. When it was finally over, she went back to her baby name books commenting briefly with a giggle. I think I might be sore tomorrow, but that's good. The deeper you insert, the better our chances to conceive. That night of the deep insertion, after Pamela had gone to sleep, I crept out of bed and silently made my way to the kitchen. It was time for the thinker pose again. And this is what I thought. I had put up with a domestic relationship of this sort only once before in my life, and I had been much, much younger. Even that fiasco wasn't as bad as this. I missed Sophia, but not sufficiently to put up with Pamela for even one more day. There was slim to no chance of my figuring out what was going on. Read the Bible sometime, the Old Testament, and figure what your odds are of deducing whatever is on God's mind. I believed Sophia when she said she was every bit as much God as he himself, and I cannot even fathom the thought processes of mortal women. I was out of my league. Consort of God, goddess, or integral part of the psyche of he himself. Whatever. In the morning she was out on her ear. As for the autobiography, I would suggest she get Plimpton or Wolf. On second thought, I'd simply endorse Wolf. Plimpton's a hack. I didn't sleep that night. Couldn't bring myself even to lie once more with Pamela. I sat at the kitchen table, 
stonier than the actual statue. Finally dawn arrived, and shortly thereafter, Pamela, pink-robed and puffy-eyed, entered the arena. "'You're up early,' she said, stifling a yawn. After an entire night of thinking, composing speech after speech in my mind, I ended up somehow with these three words. "'Hit the bricks!' Pamela seemed to go slightly more cross-eyed, and stood dumbfounded, obviously without a clue as to what I was talking about. I tried another three words. "'Out the door!' Apparently the total of six words was at least giving her some idea of my intention. She started to tear up. What? I don't understand. What did I do? Can it, Sophia. If you really want me to write this thing, then drop the airhead, mommy wannabe routine, and let's get to it. Either that or go get Tom Wolfe. Hell, get Tom Robbins. Now there's a writer. You wouldn't even have to tell him the autobiography. He could just make it up and probably hit the nail right on the head. In a soft, terrified voice, Pamela said, "'Michael, you've been drinking, haven't you?' I stood, careful not to show too much anger, remembering vividly she who had emerged on that previous occasion of my intense outburst. "'Just go, Sophia. Back to the bardo or whatever. Be gone. Out. I refuse to play.' Pamela, Sophia, Pamela, whoever, whatever, became hysterical, as if someone had turned on a faucet. Dropping to her knees, she cried uncontrollably, interjecting sentence fragments between heaving sobs. "'Nowhere to go!' gasp, sob, gasp. "'All alone with no family!' sob, gasp, sob. She continued on in this fashion for quite some time, as I sat wondering if, somehow, Sophia had gone, and left this simpering remnant as some form of punishment. I doubted it, though. Sophia had chastised me, in an instructing sort of way but I did not see her as the punishing type. Still, I did not dismiss the possibility entirely, so I did what I had done that only other time such a relationship plagued me. I walked around Pamela and into the bedroom, where I uncloseted my largest suitcase. "'You can stop crying now,' I called out to her as I quickly packed some essentials. "'You can stay here. It's all yours,' I said, making my way to the bathroom for my shaving kit. Pamela appeared in the bathroom doorway, eyes nearly swollen shut. "'Can't you at least tell me why, Shelley?' she asked. "'Yes, I can. I don't like you, much less love you. I don't want to produce a squalling brat, nor do I have any desire to insert deeply into your fish-cold body. That is not life, not for me. Now you can go on being Pamela, and live here until you are blue in the face. You can probably even find some dork on the Internet to marry you, and take care of your mammalian needs.' Scooting by her, I made it back to the bedroom and quickly dressed. Following me, she leaned weakly against that doorframe. In a week or two, I'll be back. If you're still here, I will retrieve the rest of my essential belongings and leave you finally to whatever it is you are doing. Right now, I need you to lean somewhere else, as I will require that entire doorway to get myself and this suitcase out of the bedroom and on my way. Pam moved, leaned against the hallway wall, then slid down it and cried into her lap. Quickly, I was past her and out the kitchen door. I felt good, just as I had those many years ago. Popping open the trunk, I pitched my suitcase in, then slammed it shut. It was a satisfying slam, and I smiled. With pep in my step, I walked to the driver's side door, swung it open, and hopped in. Key in the ignition, engine on, I glanced to my right where Sophia herself was sitting in the passenger seat, grinning. If she'd been a cat, canary feathers would surely have been protruding from that smile. Took you long enough, she said. 
How about Martin if it's a boy? And that's sex. How could you have pleasureless sex like that? I did not want to smile. Not yet. But the relief I was feeling made it damned near impossible. Somehow managing to keep a stern face, I said, If I go ballistic, are you going to turn into that Amazon demon again? Only if I want to. Do you want to? I asked. No smile threatened to emerge as I made that query. Nope, she said. Well, I don't want to go ballistic either, I admitted. I know. But how could you do that to me, Sophia? How am I supposed to know how to react to the antics of a god? Easy. Be true to yourself. The great philosopher Popeye said it best. I am what I am, and that's all what I am. How long were you prepared to let me go on like that? Half a lifetime and five screaming whelps, if that's how long you kept it up. Made no difference to me. I was barely there for most of it. I was all the way there in that bathroom doorway this morning, though. Can you remember what I asked you? If that was you, you certainly didn't give me any indication. I remember once when I thought I saw you in Pamela's eyes, but in the bathroom you were just hysterical. Oh, shit. Wait a minute. You called me Shelley. Bingo. I believe you asked me why. Can't you at least tell me why, Shelley? She said in the same exact voice as she had earlier. Do you remember your reply? Pretty much. Give me a second. I think I can give it to you verbatim. No need, she replied. It can all be boiled down to six words you employed in that diatribe. You said, that's not life, not for me. To thine own self be true. I said softly, thinking about an old brass medallion I had on a key ring that bore those words. So, what have we learned? Still smitten with little old Sophia? Still head over heels and fallen? I don't know what to say, Sophie. I could probably let myself get pissed enough over the Pamela incident to ask you to go. Or actually go myself. No such luck. You're stuck with me till the book is written. I could ignore you. She laughed. She continued laughing until I finally admitted, Okay, I couldn't ignore you. Sorry, Shelley, but think how funny that was. I ask if you are finished falling in love with me, and without being able to definitively answer, you claim that you could ignore me. It wasn't a fair game, Sophia. It was rigged. Pamela was mortal. You're not. So you admit that falling in love with mortal women is not being true to yourself? Yes. I was very nearly convinced of that before, Pamela. But because I am, somehow that makes me a target for you to aim at and fall upon. And to what end? I keep you amused for the rest of your life until finally you die? In which case you'd be dead, and I wouldn't? Falling in love with me, even were I to allow it, would be a very short-term situation. Couldn't I be with you after I died? How? You'd be dead. If you lived your life fallen in love, how do you suppose you'd be able to find me? Couldn't you find me? What, and entertain you for eternity? I am, true to myself. That's why I'm just as much God as he himself. If I truly loved you, I wouldn't ask any of those things of you, would I? Not if you loved me with a capital L. I think I understand. Or at least I think I'm starting to. Oh, you understand. What you need to understand is that in order to love me, you must first love yourself and love you. Eight. Out of gas. For some reason, Sophia's last statement sent me into a reverie of some sort. I could not tell how long I sat there with the car running, 
delving deeper and deeper through the layers of foul learning, trying to find me. I knew I was closer to it than I'd ever been in my life, knew the facade I'd worn for so long was thinning. Still, as far as I trod inward, it seemed the long passageway led nowhere, or was endless. And something else, I wasn't thinking this entire time. Not a thought was in my mind. I was simply feeling my way through the maze of my psyche, looking into rooms and nooks and crannies that I hadn't known were there. Certainly this cannot make much sense, and I cannot expect that it be understood. I simply report. When once again I realized where I was, the car was no longer running. Sorry, I said to Sophia, who was sitting quietly, smiling at me. I just kind of drifted out there for a second. Two hours, she said, still smiling. What? You've been gone for two hours. Your car ran out of gas twenty minutes ago. What do you mean, gone? Where have I been? Sitting right there, on the cusp where time and space meet eternity and infinity. You very nearly wandered into the vicinity of the silent contemplation of Abraxas, the unmentionable. That's what brought you back. The human mind cannot successfully contemplate Abraxas. Doing so sends you into a state of infantile omniscience or simply gives you a shock and you stop. That's what happened to you. Suddenly I remembered it, just a little shock jolting me out of my catatonia. I was searching for something, I said to myself, almost drifting off again. I stopped you thinking for a minute, and it took hold. If you can learn to stop thinking and remain conscious, well, we'll see. See what? Why do you do that? Half tell me something. It is very nearly rude, you know. Ah, Shelley's back. Sorry, I said, and immediately felt sad, as if I'd disappointed her. Disappointing her suddenly made me want to cry. There, there, she said, touching my cheek. The first sign of capital L, love, and it made you want to cry. I understood. The love she was talking about had come to me, but it was more than that. It was somehow a succumbing, acknowledging a higher being and surrendering to it, herself. Maybe you shouldn't appear to me as you do any more, Sophia, I said. Maybe that's part of my falling in love problem. Remember, you are wearing the guise of my carnal desire. Perhaps that's making it a little tougher on me than it needs to be. What would you like? An old hag, perhaps? Or maybe an animated statue of Columbia? I don't know. I'm just trying to help. You don't want me falling, and I'm just trying to take your advice more to heart. I'll change a little then, just for you, she said because, believe it or not, I'm here to help in any way I can. Okay? Okay. Just nothing scary like the witch. Please. I promise nothing scary. Close your eyes. You promise? Didn't I say I promised? Okay. I closed my eyes, and as soon as I had done so, she said, You can open them now. I did, and there she sat. Exactly the same. Except meticulously made up. Exquisitely made up wearing a bright red mini cocktail dress with red fishnet stockings and, I swear, ruby slippers. My car seat became uncomfortable. I thought you were going to change, not just change clothes. I did, she said. I'm a transvestite. Would you like to see my penis? What? Then the laughing began. She laughed so hard and so genuinely that I immediately caught it and roared until tears streamed down my face. When finally it subsided, I couldn't help but glance at her lap and ask, You don't really... And then we both erupted again into fits of hilarity. 
Sophia took my hand and drew it to her, was about to pull it up under her dress. Unsure, I yanked it back, and she howled even louder, which caused me nearly to hyperventilate I was laughing so loud. Once again she took my hand. I promise, she said, trying to staunch her appeals of mirth. I've got to reassure you. This went on for some time. I have no idea how long. I must have pulled my hand back three or four times, feeling certain it was just the kind of joke she'd play on me, to get my hand in there and suddenly have me holding an enormous erection. Finally, when I just plain refused to put my hand between her legs, she got out of the car, came around to my side, and opened the door. I was kidding, she said, still smiling, but not laughing. Now, if you want to make love to me, then she stepped back and pirouetted once, looking absolutely candy-wrapped. Get out right now and chase me into that bedroom. No more questions, no more promises. Trust me or don't, it was a joke. With that she turned and started a sexy little run for the kitchen door. I was out of my fuel-depleted vehicle in a flash and hot on her heels. The rest of that day I will not comment on, except to say that Sophia's joke was just that, although she had made physical changes. Somehow she had actually improved on my design, and was the most stunning, provocative, desirable woman-child I had ever seen, and could probably not even have imagined. Oh, yes, and that romp lasted all of three days, after which I slept for another entire spin of the earth. I think it was Sophie's way of giving me a little break, which, as will become apparent, I would need. Nine. Curiouser and Curiouser After twenty-four hours of undisturbed sleep, I opened my eyes. Sophia was propped on an elbow watching me. What are you doing? I asked. I was watching you sleep. You're very good at it. You barely moved for twenty-four hours and twenty-two minutes. As you once pointed out, I am a middle-aged, mortal man. I know very few of those who could have survived three continuous days of your insatiable appetite. I'm surprised I awoke at all. My insatiable appetite. I wasn't exactly forcing myself on you, you know. Be honest, Sophia, you did something to me, some kind of hocus-pocus. Even in my prime, which I am barely out of, by the by, there is just no way. Well, there's no way, I said, feeling no need to spell it out for her. It was all you, Shelley. Capital L love stamina. That whole time we were playing, you were in the moment. That other kind of love you fall into keeps you out of the moment, worrying about what will be and what has been. That's why it doesn't work, and why sex loses its flavor like over-chewed gum. When you are in the moment, time ceases to affect. That entire three days was a single moment. A single moment that finally knocked me out for twenty-four hours. How long were you watching me, anyway? Twenty-four hours and twenty-two minutes. You didn't sleep at all, I asked, amazed. I wanted to see if you'd go anywhere interesting in your dreams. I don't remember having any dreams, I said. Did I? I added when she didn't volunteer. Your anima beckoned to you in your sleep, and you went. You called her Anna. Anna! I exclaimed. I was about to say more on the subject of Anna, but for some reason did not. It didn't matter, of course. You must remember who Sophia is, namely she herself. It was especially hard for me to remember, with her looking the way she did. But, looks or no, Sophia is omniscient, and took this opportunity to remind me of that fact. Anna, she began, appears in quite a few of your short stories. You are aware of her, and have been for quite some time. Why do you suppose you have never made love to her in your dreams? 
On occasion you have come close, but you always wake up before it happens. This conversation was making me uncomfortable. The past four days, including the one I had slept through, had been glorious, peaceful, and anxiety-free. Sophie's present queries and comments were giving me a distinct feeling that tribulation was once again at hand. I was not ready for it. Why ask me questions, Sophia? You already know the answers. If you want to explain something about my psyche, go ahead. I'm fairly well versed in Jungian psychology, so if you instruct in those terms, and avoid invoking that impostor Freud, I should be able to follow you. Freud would have made a good veterinarian, Sophia responded. He was a mammalian psychologist. I laughed. That was such a perfect description of Freud. Mammalian psychologist. What kind of psychologist would you call Jung? she asked me. I thought for a moment, then smiled. He was an archetypical psychologist. He wanted to stethoscope the soul. Ah, the soul. Why do you suppose you've never made love to Anna in your dreams? she asked, as if for the first time. I once kissed Meg Ryan in a dream, I said, obviously avoiding her question. Why, Shelley, don't you make love to Anna when she appears? Tell me, damn it! I said in a raised and aggravated voice. Tell me if you're going to, or drop it. I know she represents my anima. I'm not as stupid as you think. And I have made love to her, many times, in stories. It's always me who makes love to Anna in those stories. Me by any other name. Those stories contain only expressions of Anna. Facsimiles. You've been with the real thing in your dreams. I knew she knew. And she knew I knew she knew. Not one of the dreams in which I almost made love to Anna, but awoke, were what I would call good dreams, like the one in which I kissed Meg Ryan. Though not nightmares, they were uncomfortable, strange, and very vivid. They were also extremely few and far between. In fact, I could really only remember one, the most recent, in which we were very close to making love. What about the tiny little pale girl, the one all dressed in white? Sophie replied, as if I'd said all of the above out loud. That wasn't Anna, I growled. I was losing control of my temper. And don't tell me you're not reading my mind. You know everything, don't you? You know what I'm going to think before I think it. Is that what the promises of a god amount to? Tricks? Ignoring my tirade, Sophia said, The archetypes have psyches of their own, and within them, their own personality constructs. There is Anna, and there is the shadow of Anna. You've been with both. But they are part of you and to engage sexually with either would be tantamount to sex with your soul, or an aspect of your soul. Practically incest, at least while you share this life. You have seen Anna in her nearly divine aspect, and in her malevolent aspect. Being an archetype of your personality, she must, as all the other archetypes that dwell in your psyche, be under your control in order for you to evolve. When you saw her divine aspect, she was under control and sought to aid you. You saw your own shadow in that particular dream, and, if you recall, the two of you controlled it. I remembered that dream in detail, even though I'd had it over twenty years ago. At the time, I was keeping a dream journal for a Jungian psyche class, so I'd written it down. In it, I had been on some sort of ship. Opposing forces were in conflict over control of that vessel. The nemesis archetype, my shadow, was the leader of the crew trying to take control. They were after me. A girl was by my side, this being long before her name became Anna. I can't really say how or why I came to call her that. I remember her always being close to me throughout that dream, so close there were times she actually seemed to somehow be part way into me. Finally, the enemy was upon us. 
From somewhere that girl produced a knife, all inscribed with runes of some sort, which had a curved moon-shaped blade. She handed it to me without saying a word. I pointed this crescent dagger at my shadow and said, Freeze! I can still see that dark figure staring at me, grinning, trying to move, but barely able. All this took place below decks of the ship. With my enemy incapacitated, I made my way topside, and beheld a gray sky over a gray ocean. My companion was still with me, closer than ever, truly a part of me now. I turned to her and said something to the effect of, With this power, meaning the knife, I can defeat them. No, she told me. It may have been the first words she'd spoken. You must cast it into the sea. Without hesitation I did as she said, tossing the knife into that choppy gray vastness. When I had done so, she disappeared, and I have always maintained that she had passed the rest of the way into me. I realized that my enemy would eventually make his way topside, but I was not afraid. Somehow I knew it was time to leave that ship. I jumped overboard and into the sea. Immediately I felt safe, as if the ocean was somehow acknowledging my gift of that knife. I had the distinct feeling that I had returned it to its rightful owner. Lying on my back, beneath the surface, my hand steepled on my chest with my fingers just touching that thinnest line where water meets air. I found I could travel anywhere I wanted to go in that eternal expanse. The ship I'd been fighting for seems actually to have been an impediment to the freedom of movement I was capable of without it. That was the dream Sophia was referring to, and though I was well rested, I wanted no part of this psychology lesson, or the dredging up of disturbing visions. My tone of voice went from angry to pitiful and pleading. Please, Sophia, stop. Can't you see this is upsetting me? Not to mention that it's giving me a headache. I was just trying to help, she said. Help what? Damn, my head hurts. I am about to answer your question. This conversation may help you through it. What question? I asked, actually pressing my palms to my temples now. My head hurts so badly. Couldn't I be with you after I died? I asked you that days ago, I said, my voice filled with pain. Days, hours, moments, it's all the same to me. Try to remember what you've learned while you're dead. When she said that, the pain became a white-hot spike driven through my skull. I may have screamed, but I don't think I had the chance. As suddenly the pain completely vanished. And there was light. No. Whiteness. Solid and substantial. As if I was within a luminescent wall. I was about to feel anger. But anger at who? Yes, Sophia. 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 That name seemed familiar, but it was fading into an uncertain memory, distant and unconvincing. Then this incredible white encasing me became a tangible manifestation of peace and calm. Memory was unimportant. Only standing saturated in the peace of this totality of white was important, until even standing ended, as if gravity had been removed or had never been. Nor was I floating, which would have involved an absence of gravity. Both concepts were non-existent. All concepts were extinguished. There was only this white peace and that which it enveloped. All meanness was gone. The white, the peace, and that which experienced it existed. Nothing else. Had this condition continued forever, no one would have noticed. It was a frozen moment, neither objectively nor subjectively observed. The white and the peace and the experiencing were one thing, elemental insoluble, subatomic. 
At some point I passed through this wall into beingness again, and felt as though I had been washed in light, was now clean and restored to a proper state. My body was ever so slightly radiant, and bathed in an ultra-blue neon glow. I was painless, thoughtless, and calm. No beating heart disturbed the stillness of this body, nor did I breathe, but was sustained by a single half-breath, not an inhale or an exhale. It was somehow both at once. How long I stayed, head back, eyes closed, but still seeing that ultraviolet light, I cannot say. When finally I moved, the motion felt so perfect that the entire universe seemed to move in response. Without thinking, I knew I was about to rise. I looked up and saw space filled with stars, more than I had seen from any earthly vantage point on which I'd ever stood. For some reason I felt the stars were laughing, though I heard no sound. Just a moment more and I would be with them, risen straight upward, born celestial. Then something caught my eye and caused me to lower my gaze to the level on which I still remained. It was a building, off in the distance. As I focused my attention there, it seemed not only to become distinct, but to draw nearer, or I to it, until I could see that it was an airport. I do not recall taking any step, but suddenly a huge glass door was directly in front of me. It slid open. Something was in my hand that I hadn't noticed before. It was an airline ticket. It said, simply, in large letters, England, one way. This seemed proper to me. Yes, I was going to England. I was taking no baggage. I would not return. Upon entering through that beckoning door, I noticed a large counter, and behind the counter, a man sitting high atop a huge file cabinet. There was no one else in the building, and I could see several dimly lit corridors, like tiled tunnels, leading away from this great, empty lobby. Then it dawned on me that I didn't know which of these corridors would take me to my flight. I walked over to the counter and was about to inquire of the man atop the file cabinet, when suddenly I noticed someone standing next to me. It was a very diminutive young woman, dressed in white from head to toe. Even her stockings were solid white, like a leotard. I took her outfit to be a uniform of some sort, and was apparently correct. "'Would you like me to escort you to your flight?' she asked. I couldn't help but notice that she was very pretty, and had eyes so pale you could barely call them blue. "'Don't go with her,' the man atop the files said to me. "'Find the airport police. They will get you to your flight.' "'Come with me,' the girl said, ignoring the man. "'It's right this way.' She started to walk toward one of the corridors. Once more the man said, with no tone of emotion or even conviction, "'Don't go with her.' She turned and smiled at me beckoning, and I followed. The corridor she chose was dimly lit and windowless. The passageway curved, making it impossible to see more than a few dozen feet into its distance. Accompanying me to my right, the girl in white smiled shyly and impressed me with her pale beauty. After walking for what seemed to be quite some time, I began to worry that I would miss my flight. As if anticipating my concern, the girl said, "'It isn't much further.' Shortly we came upon a section of this tunnel that contained a shallow alcove. In this barely lit depression stood what appeared to be a janitor, or some other employee, wearing the drab uniform of a menial. He was holding a hose, and suddenly stepped out, spraying water on the girl in white. I noticed that he was grinning, and can only describe his expression as less than sane. After his antics with the hose, he disappeared back into the shadows of his niche in the wall. The girl in white, soaking wet, laughed nervously, 
as if this episode had been some kind of unexpected practical joke. Her clothes were sticking to her now, and something about this aroused me. "'You look good wet,' I said, a little surprised that I had been so bold. The girl smiled, and seemed pleased that I had noticed. Then I heard a mumble of laughter, low, muffled, and noticed a screen of some sort, like cheesecloth tacked to a wooden frame. Apparently there were a number of people behind it, and I somehow knew their laughter was directed at me. As we continued to walk down this seemingly endless corridor, the girl in white moved very close to me, and I was becoming more and more aroused by her, almost to the point of being uncomfortable. Finally she said to me, very matter-of-factly, I love you. When she said that, desire overwhelmed me. I love you, too, I said. Just then the corridor ended at a series of large windows and a glass door. I could see a jet out on the tarmac. The sky was solid gray, but it did not appear to be gray with clouds. The girl in white was standing between me and the doorway. Will you stay with me? she asked. I looked at the jet, then back to her. Yes, I said. With that she jumped into my arms, wrapping her legs around my torso. I was holding her up by her buttocks. How long will you stay with me? she asked, smiling and wide-eyed. I wasn't sure what to say. When I hesitated, she asked, How long were you going to stay in England? Forever, I answered. Then she laughed, and I noticed that her buttocks seemed skeletal in my hands. All I could feel were bones. I watched as the jet became airborne, and quickly rose up and out of sight. A sick feeling came over me, and suddenly the girl was gone, though I could still hear her laughing. The laughter became a tremendous wind howling around me, disorienting me. The airport, too, was suddenly gone. I now stood on a barren plain. Over me was a night sky, moonless, but full of stars. Though I couldn't feel it, I could still hear that wind blowing. Where am I? I thought. Then immediately heard a voice in the wind say, Where am I? Everything I thought from then on was carried on that gale in mocking tones and different voices. Then I saw that some of the stars were moving, gathering, aligning to become faces. At first like distinct constellations, then finally forming vivid, neon-looking visages. Again I felt sick, and realized that it was the nausea of fear. I began to run. By this time the voices were myriad, repeating my thoughts over and over. The faces the stars had become were following me, and it turned hideous. I engaged myself in a dead run, fleeing in full-blown panic, but there was nowhere to hide on that desolate plain. Finally I dropped to the ground, surrounded by voices and faces all taunting me. I curled into a fetal ball and closed my eyes, covered my ears till I saw and heard nothing. Then my panic seemed to ebb, and I felt myself rising into a state of euphoria. Still I dared not look, or hear, or move. Eventually I felt myself falling back into a state of sickening fear and anxiety. Then again I would rise out of it and into peace. This rising and falling continued for some while. Each time the highs and lows became less severe, less pronounced, as if I was settling into some point between the two. As this settling occurred, I began to lose consciousness. It was not sleep I was drifting into, but oblivion. As it overtook me, I welcomed it. So harrowing had my experiences on that plain been. My last conscious memory was of circling in on myself even tighter. Then there was nothing. I was gone. A single point of awareness, like a mote of dust suspended in the vastness of space, suddenly lit by a rising star. 
two hearts beat, one within, one surrounding. No I, no who, no what was apparent, just that rhythmic pulse and the echo within. Perfect warmth, totally embraced. Speck of awareness stretches like tendrils of a spark, unfurling appendages, kicking the confines that close in tighter, growing smaller until something gives, drains the suspension and initiates gravity. Heavy, heaving, the confines constrict, squeeze, push. Aware of the absence of warmth, drowning now on violent air taken in hard and cold until it produces sound a high-pitched wail invades the absence of silence blurred light touch touched roughly swallowed one heart beats the exhaustion of trauma induces sleep and dreams of floating in that perfect warmth where two hearts beat waking me held to warmth sweet silky cream tepid on my tongue i am deep in a cradle of arms primal this urge to suck I am aware, open my eyes against the will of my mouth, my tongue so perfectly wrapped on that nipple I see. And remember, Sophia, holding me, tiny me. No, those eyes are ever so crossed, cooing, rocking me. Pamela sing-songs. What a precious baby, yes you are, Mama's precious little boy. Slick with mother's milk, my throat opens to let pass a scream. In my mind I hear, no, as a squalling wail fills my ears. I am out of breath, gasping for air. No! Not yet, anyway, Sophia replied. It was, I was, it was Pamela, I was her precious baby boy, Sophia finished for me. You did that. That wasn't a dream. Oh, no, it definitely wasn't a dream. But, but you're here again, at exactly the same moment you died. I am not constrained by time, Shelley. I am like a writer. I can go anywhere in the story, and erase, change, start over. You died, events unfolded. Then I returned you to this moment, allowing you to keep the memory of that which I erased. You suckling at Pamela's breast occurred, but you were not aware of your present self at the time. That is a memory you experienced just before you came to. How did you like it? How did I like what? I replied, incredulous. Being Pamela's baby, nursing, being born, being dead. How did you like the answer to your question? I was staring at Sophia, who suddenly in all her beauty seemed to me a monster. The fear of God. Now I truly understood that expression. Slowly I got out of bed. Never taking my eyes off her, I dressed. What you doing? she asked. I said nothing retrieved my car keys from the dresser and walked to the bedroom door, still keeping Sophia under strict surveillance. Your car is out of gas, she reminded me. I pitched the keys into a corner of the room. As Sophia watched them fly, I darted for the kitchen door. Once outside, I ran as hard as I had on that taunting plane while I was... What? I didn't want to know, but I did. I'd read the Tibetan Book of the Dead, and though I'd failed to recognize it while I was there, knew I had been in the bardo that place the dead pass through before rising or being reborn. To put it simply, in taking for granted, I actually understood as much of that book as I thought I did. I ran until I came to a phone booth. From there I called a cab. It arrived in record time. Where are we going, bud? The cabbie asked me. I wasn't sure. I hadn't had a drink in almost ten years. How about the second level? Is that still there? Of course it is, the cabbie replied. 
You been out of town for a while, or what? Or what, I told him. He gave me an ugly look in the rearview mirror, and I repented. Sorry, I told him. I've been on the wagon. How long? he asked, seeming to be genuinely interested. About ten years. That's a long time, he said. After a short pause, he continued. So what, you just all of a sudden get thirsty? I was barely listening to him now, the events of my death and birth still rattling in my skull. Born again, I finally answered. Dead and born again. I heard of born-again Christians, the cabbie chuckled. But you're my first born-again drinker. Planning on tying one on? Like a noose, I answered. Hell, I'm about to call it a night. Mind if I join you for a couple of cold ones? I'll be drinking hot ones, I told him. Hundred and ten-proof hot ones. It's been a wild turkey kind of day. Damn, you are serious. Tell you what, spring for a couple of brews and the ride's covered. Suits me, I said, as we pulled in to the second level. Dylan Thomas, Hart Crane, James Dickey, F. Scott. How many great writers and artists took the solace of alcohol to the extreme? I had put in my time as an inebriated artist, eventually coming to the conclusion that I did not want to die that way. For me, however, moderation was not an available option, nor was I able to simply quit. Fortunately, I found what to this day I believe was the only way to stop that would work for me. As I walked up the long stairwell leading to the second level, I began unraveling the tapestry of my sobriety. I searched my labyrinth mind for the one door behind which the drunk I had been still cowered. When I opened it, he rushed out and embraced me. About damn time, he said. Let's get to it. The padded, backed barstool felt good under my kicked and beaten ass. If I'd had some superglue with me, I'd have attached myself to it. Behind the bar were a hundred bottles of sweet, hot poison, a myriad of colors, hues, pastels, and diamond-clear concoctions, all designed to remove whatever stains reality might inflict upon the upholstery of one's life. While still a world-class sot, bourbon had been my personal venom of choice. On this night of my retreat, however, I decided to drink through the color chart. I'd start clear with vodka then continue imbibing until I reached the green of Midori and the ghastly violet of slow gin. Once I started, there would be no stopping. I would be safe within the confines of inebriation, and when I was full of bottled courage, Sophia's fun house jaunts and roller coaster scares would simply become part of the long-haul bender on which I was about to embark, keeping consciousness to a minimum, reviving only briefly to refill. I would certainly be of no use to her either for sport or study. Whatever her ultimate intentions might be, I would stifle and ruin, confuse and negate, just as I had done to everything else I'd encountered when, in that before time, drinking was my full-time occupation. "'What'll it be, friend?' the barkeep intoned. "'Havoc,' I replied. "'Let loose the dogs of war!' "'And what might the dogs be drinking tonight?' he asked, obviously unimpressed with my passion. "'Smirnoff Silver. Straight up, make it a double,' I told him. Then, remembering the cabbie, who had seated himself on the stool beside me, added, "'And provide for my chauffeur here as well. Tell the nice man what swill you prefer,' I said to the driver. "'Just tap me a cold one. Real beer, nothing light,' the cabbie said to the bartender. To me, he added, "'So, I'm actually going to get to see somebody jump off a ten-year wagon ride. This should be good. I'll bet you're a sloppy drunk, too, aren't you?' The bartender set a rocks glass in front of me, and damn near filled it with hundred-proof grain. 
I ignored the cabbie's transition into obnoxiousness. I'll give you two to one odds you piss yourself before the night's over, he continued. I ceased ignoring him. Get it out of your system now, I said, holding up the glass of vodka and peering through it. Once I've had a couple of these, just before I get to the pissing myself stage, I tend to become a trifle murderous, especially with surly hack jockeys. Try and get a few more beers into you before then, on me. They'll dull the pain. Damn, the cabbie chuckled. You're half-lit just looking at it, aren't you? Yes, I heard myself say. For some reason I couldn't stop gazing into the crystal clarity of that glass and what it contained. Like Nostradamus intent at his bowl, I could see the future in there. I could see it because it had once been the past. It was a place of sickness and confusion, compulsion and regret. This is what I was preparing to pour into me. Oh, I was quite aware that I had trailered a goodly load of shortcomings even during my sober decade. But even that awareness would dim and slip away once the pouring began. The greatest solace of my sobriety had always been that I knew, knew, that as long as I kept it I had a chance. A chance at what I did not know. But something was out there for me, waiting, anticipating my arrival. Something that I had no chance of finding once the blindfold of booze stopped my vision. It was a vile concoction I held, and I knew it. It was my heel in Hera's hand, a flamethrower aimed at the beeswax of my wings, a kryptonite enema. I despised what I was about to do. You better not drink that, bud, I barely heard the cabbie say. Look at yourself. You're sweating like a whore in church. You're scared, ain't you? Scared if I do and scared if I don't, I said, coming out of my reverie. But it's the only way. Literally forcing my hand to move, to bring that glass petard to my lips, I felt a thrill or chill dance up my spine as I opened my throat, and quite against my very own will, poured that double down me. I was prepared for the jolt, the heat, and that awesome rush, but they never materialized. Without a doubt, what I'd knocked back so boldly turned out to be water. I was confused. I'd seen the bartender pour. I thought I'd give you one last chance to reconsider, the cabbie told me. If you do it again, though, I won't intervene. Sophia, I said, dropping my head onto the bar. Bartender, she called. I looked up and it was she herself, dressed in a classic little black dress. My friend needs another double. Coming up, darling, he said, as if she'd been sitting there all night. If you drink it this time, it'll be the real McCoy. Once you start, you'll never recover again, but I will be gone. The bartender poured. Drink it, Shelley. All your demons are waiting for you. And hey, it won't last long. Before you know it, you'll die. If you go that route, I promise you won't remember a thing. Fuck you, Sophia, I said, though it sounded more like a plea than a curse. Just fuck you. That would be fine with me, Shelley, though you really don't seem to be in the mood. Still, I will if you'd like. Or you could drink that vodka and fuck yourself. Slowly I poured the liquor onto the bar, leaving the glass upside down in the puddle. My strength was gone. It was all I could do to breathe. This was defeat. This was surrender, and I knew it was unconditional. I turned and looked at Sophia, radiant and beautiful on that bar stool. There was not a feeling in me. Not lust. Not love. Not hate or fear. Do your worst, I said to her. I give up. Then I somehow managed to stand and walk toward that long flight of stairs leading down from the second level.
My car was parked directly in front of the entrance to the second level. The keys were hanging in the ignition. I turned and looked back up that stairwell, expecting to see Sophia descending behind me. She was not. Like a war-torn soldier after a grueling battle, I fumbled with shell-shocked fingers for a cigarette, hung it from my lip. For some time before I lit that smoke, I stared at my silver Zippo and the monogram on it. As hard as I tried, I could not attach any meaning to those letters, or what they stood for. At best they were the fleeting moniker of a transient, an ancient alias, and future headstone. And the S stood for shell. How appropriate. For just a moment I thought I could actually feel me moving around within this shell, squirming, trying to square my shoulders in a suit that no longer fit. I lit my cigarette and pitched the lighter into a darkness that took it without a sound. I smoked to that cigarette sitting in the driver's seat, waiting, watching those stairs. Then it dawned on me. It was the punchline of a joke, the obvious ending of a bad B-movie. I flicked the last of that camel out the window, watched the cherry-red ember sail end over end toward a puddle in the street. As it touched down in the oily little pool, I could barely hear that audible half-second hiss, the last little bit of fuse on the top. The house seemed incredibly empty. I would not be able to stay there long, even knowing as I did, that no matter where I went, the emptiness would follow. All the truths I'd buried and hidden were laid out before me now, in every direction. All the masks and facades I'd hidden behind were blowing away like ash in a gale. There would be no more women in my life, real or imagined. This account of my journey into desolation would be the last piece written by J. Michael Shell. I would end with this story the autobiography I'd never received. The rest of my life I'd spend waiting, because I knew too much to do anything else. There are gods, and there are gods. There are the gods men create that they can live with, and the gods they must ignore so that their petty lives make sense. I'd seen too much to ignore, and not nearly enough to understand. I do not know how long I sat at the foot of my bed with my head in my hands. Finally I undressed, slipped between those sheets from which I'd summoned, or had been summoned, by... what? Who? It never happened, I said, and though I felt absolutely nothing, a tear slid down my cheek. In the darkness I touched that drop of dew and wondered where it had come from. My soul to keep, my soul to take, I whispered, as sleep took me like a thief. She was waiting for me there, more beautiful than ever she'd been wearing flesh. I felt very young and strong looking at her. The ether was filled with that smoky white light, and even before he spoke, I knew he would. Hello, Shelley, that voice resounded. I just wanted to tell you what a fine job you did handling the autobiography. I'd love to stay and chat, but I think Sophia would rather I leave you two alone right now. We're never alone, are we? I asked. He himself laughed and laughed, then finally said, You see, Sophia, I told you he understood. Oh, no, you don't, she replied, wearing only a sly smile. I told you. Slowly the laughter of he himself faded away with that light. Floating or walking, I'm not sure which. Sophia came to me, placed hands that felt like clouds on my shoulders. Look there, Shelley, she said, pointing down at our feet. I did. 
and could see my bed somewhere far below us. I could just make out my sleeping form. It's me, I said. No, Shelley, you are here with me. How do you feel? Without thinking, I answered, I feel new. You are brand new, Shelley. You always have been, and you always will be. As she said that, I saw a tear form in her eye, and slowly fall to moisten her cheek. Why are you crying? I asked. That's your tear, Shelley. Don't you recognize it? It's the emptiness you shed just before you prayed, so sweetly, and offered me your soul. I don't understand. You needn't understand. You need only ask. You need only accept. There's too much to understand, Shelley. Even he himself, who knows all there is, understands things one at a time, moment to moment, eternal though they may be. There is but one thing you must understand. When that moment is gone, it is gone, and understanding moves on to the next. When you understand the moment we spent together, a new one will dawn and you will delight in it. Only delight awaits you now, if you will accept it. Accept what? I asked. But I knew the answer. Sophia stepped forward and embraced me. The feeling of flesh upon flesh was dispelled by a swirl of speckled light like flecks of gold in a whirlwind. These motes of light, mine and Sophia's, joined and combined in every pattern they could form. No words were ever created to describe the ecstasy of our melding. I understood Sophia, and I understood myself. We became the one that physical love intends to imitate, but fails. Forever we held ourselves in that embrace as galaxies bloomed like morning glories. A universe unto ourselves, we were one. Time began and ended. Eternity held its breath. So far into each other did our light extend that separation became unfathomable. And I, which was we, knew love for the very first time, exactly as we'd always known it. Always. Dawn slipped around the curtains and woke me like a feather tickling my nose. Every breath I took felt different, distinct, as I came instantly fully awake. No villain thoughts assaulted my peace of mind. Birds sang, and I knew the words. I rose as if to their song. The memory of celestial love was fully with me, but no thoughts sullied it. I understood. As I walked toward the kitchen, I smelled pancakes. A huge stack was steaming on a plate in the middle of the table. A pat of butter sat melting on top. I smiled. Could smell just a hint of vanilla. Next to the plate was a sheet of vellum and on it was penned, in elegant calligraphy, the autobiography of God. I'm a magician in a world that scoffs at magic, a lover alone. I am stoned in a room full of monks, serene in a screaming asylum. I'm an unemployed comic, an angel in a monkey suit, tired amongst the wired, health amidst lepers, sunlight at night, a meal in a blight. I am the song on a deaf mute's mind. A portrait for the blind. The water a desert craves. A joke to the knaves. A sermon to sheep. A eulogy 
to make you weep. I am joy as you mourn your dead, death as you emerge head first and blood red. I am all you fear and all you crave, a coward brave. I am all that is left when your life is through. I am you. Bill Desperandum is released under a Creative Commons Attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Editor and publisher is Jim Phillips. Audio production in cooperation with the Bear Crawling Nation. Engineer Hugh Morrison. And executive producer, Charles McFall.